This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. This morning we want to go in the Word of God to John's Gospel, uh, chapter 19. Gospel of John, chapter 19. Uh, Just reading one verse, uh, verse 30. So John 19, verse 30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. This morning, again, we stand at the foot of the cross, the place where we met our Savior, where he was wounded for our transgressions, where he was bruised for our iniquities, the place where we were washed in the blood of the Lamb. And we have been speaking over these past uh, few weeks, uh, these seven statements that Jesus made from the cross, the seven last words he spoke from the cross. And the first word was a word of divine pardon. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The second word was a divine promise. He said to the dying thief, Today you shall be with me in paradise. The third word was divine provision. He spoke to his mother and he says, Woman, behold your son. He spoke to John and said, Behold your mother. The fourth word was divine perplexity. That enigmatic word, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The fifth word was divine pronouncement, I thirst. The sixth word was a divine proclamation, it is finished. And the seventh word was a divine presentation where he presented himself to the Father. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. So in this message this morning, we're going to focus our thoughts upon the sixth word from the cross. Probably more sermons has been preached about this word than all the others put together. And yet the truth of it will never be exhausted, though 10,000 preachers use it as their text. This wonderful word, it is finished. Please notice he didn't say, I am finished. It is is finished. This was no cry from a broken, defeated, worn-out man. John was the only one who recorded this where he said, it is finished. None of the other gospel writers recorded it, but all of them said in those last words from the cross that he spoke with a loud voice. And so Jesus says very loud and clear to everyone who was standing around, it is finished. There are those who have kept Christ on a cross. His death to all intents and purposes, as far as they were concerned, was him finished, the end of him. But they didn't see him, and they don't see him as the living, resurrected Lord, the King of all kings, the Christ of glory, the judge of all the earth. He was not finished. It was finished. His priestly work 
his work as an advocate on our behalf, his work as a mediator, his intercessory work as our great high priest, all of that is continuing even as we speak to this very day. It is finished. What is the it that was finished? Possibly no words that Jesus ever spoke needs our attention more than this one single statement. Actually, this sixth word from the cross in the Greek language is literally just one single word, tetelestai. So when Jesus cried out on the cross, he cried one word, tetelestai. Now the Greeks prided themselves in their language. They said that in their language, there would be an ocean of meaning in just one drop of language. A notion of meaning in just one drop of language. And although this word is unfamiliar to us, of course, but yet in Christ's day, it was a very popular word. It was a word that was in common usage in his day. So to those who were standing around, it was very clear and very simple. There was no mistaking it. They didn't misunderstand, like when he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And they thought he was calling for Elijah. No, they understood what he said in this word. What they didn't understand was the true meaning behind what he said. They did not grasp that. And so we're going to have a little look at what this word tetelestai means. Because there's various thoughts. There's various shades of meaning. A notion of meaning in one drop of language. So that we can grasp exactly what Jesus was saying here. First of all, it was a household word. When a servant completed the job that his master had given him to do, he would come back and say, Tetelestai, it is finished. In John 17 and 4, Jesus says, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work that you gave me to do. Even though he hadn't even went to the cross at that point, but he knew he was going and he knew he would complete the work. So he's saying in advance, I have finished the work that you have given me to do. Tetelestai, that's what it means. It was a priestly word. When the sacrificial lamb or any animal sacrifice would be brought to the priest before it was sacrificed, he would examine it thoroughly to see if there was any faults or any flaws or any blemishes. And having examined it, he would declare, it is perfect. The equivalent of tetelestai, a perfect, faultless sacrifice. And our Lord Jesus, of course, was the Lamb of God who was the spotless, faultless, perfect sacrifice for our sins, wasn't he? In Matthew 3.17, at his baptism, the Father spoke from heaven and says, This is my beloved in whom I am well pleased. In Luke 23 and 4, when he stood before Pilate, Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. His wife had a terrible dream that night, suffered many things because of the dream. And she said to Pilate, have nothing to do with that just man. Even the very thief on the cross, he said, this man has done nothing amiss. Even Judas, who betrayed him, when he came back to the priest and he threw the money down, he says, I have sinned in that I betrayed innocent blood. And so, it was a priestly word, tetelestai. It was an artistic word. 
whenever a painter or a sculptor or an artisan, whenever he was completing his masterpiece, when he put his final brush stroke or his final chip of his hammer, he would examine it and nothing could be added to complete it. It was finished, it was done, it was tetelestai. It was finally accomplished. Throughout the Old Testament, God was painting a picture of his son. The first picture was quite obscure. But as the prophets would prophesy over the centuries, the picture became clear and clear and clear. Every prophet's word was another brushstroke to make the picture clear. And on the cross, the picture was complete. Nothing more was to be added. No more brushstrokes. It was all complete. Tetelestai, completed, accomplished. It was a farmer's word. Old F.W. Borum, one of Jason's favorite authors, in his little book, A Handful of Stars, he says that when an, an animal or a lamb particularly was born in his flock, and it was beautiful, and it was spotless, and it was without fault, he would gaze upon it, and he would say, Tetelestai, perfect. It was a merchant's word. It was widely used in trading. And whenever somebody bought something, then there would be stamped upon it the receipt, the word Tetelestai, paid in full. And when Jesus went to that cross, and he cried out, Tetelestai. He was crying out, paid in full. It's been completed. It's been accomplished. Nothing more can be added to it. It's done. It's over. It was a merchant's word. Paul says that we were slaves to sin in Romans 6, 15 to 23. He says in Romans 7, 14, that we were sold in the marketplace. I am carnal, he said, sold under sin. But Christ came to that marketplace. He paid that full price to free us, to liberate us from our sins. He paid the full price. This is what Peter said, 1 Peter 1, 18, 19. For as much as you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from the aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. So are you getting a flavor of this word, what it means? So when Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Tetelestai, it meant all of those things. But in essence, you could sum it all up in that statement, paid in full, completed, accomplished, done. And it was done, amen? And it was complete. The law, the law was paid in full. You see, God's law was so demanding. It was so exacting. It was such a high standard that we could not keep it. Even if we broke just one law, James says in James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in just one point, he is guilty of all. Now that's the high standard, isn't it? It's 100% or nothing. Not 99%. 100% or nothing. And nobody could keep it 
It was such a holy high standard. So what then is the purpose of the law? To show us how easily and how readily and how continually we broke God's law. To remind us, to touch our conscience, to show us that we have broken the law of Almighty God. To show us that his standard of holiness was so high that even with all of our best efforts, we were never able to keep it. And we were always continually breaking it and always adding to the debt that we owed God. And the more man tries to adjust himself before God by trying to keep the law, the more he is indebted to the law because he's continually breaking the law. Paul says the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, to show us, to teach us that we could not live a perfect life before a perfectly holy God, that we would fall short again and again and again. That being the case, then we would need a savior. We would need one who could keep his, God's law. We would need one who could keep every jot and tittle of that law and not break even one single point of it, but not just keep it, but fulfill it. The law doesn't save a man. It condemns a man. Galatians 3.20 Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in the sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So what then shall we do if we cannot keep God's law and we keep breaking it and we keep getting into more debt to God because we keep breaking his law? What can we do? The only thing we can do is look for the Savior who kept all of God's law, who never broke any of it, and who paid the price that we should have paid for breaking God's law. And so tetelestai means that he paid in full the debt that we owed that we could not pay. He paid it all, thank God. It's completed, it's accomplished, it's finished for you and for me. In Galatians 5, uh, 1 to 6, In fact, I'll find it in this here. Galatians 5, 1 to 6. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. These people had come out from under all those laws that had bound them, and all the ceremonial laws that they had to go through in the Old Testament and they come out of that because Christ saved them and rescued them. But the danger was they were going to go back into that again. And they're going to get tangled up in that again. So Paul says, stand fast therefore in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace, for we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. And so Christ fulfilled the law 
for us. In Romans 6.14, Paul says, Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. Glory to God. It is finished. Tetelestai. What was finished? Salvation was finished. The price had been fully paid. Glory to God. In Romans 10, 9 to 14, Sorry, Hebrews 10, 9 to 14. What was in Romans 4? Let me read it. There's a couple of places I want to read from another translation. We'll do that in a minute. Hebrews 10, uh, verse 9 to 14. Then he says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. And every high priest standing, ministering daily, and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he, had, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down at the right hand of God. From that time waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he was perfected forever. He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And so Christ has made sure that the salvation has been complete and has been finished. The great D.L. Moody, one time he was asked by a man, what must I do to be saved? And Moody says, nothing. All the doing has been done. Amen. All the doing has been done. All you have to do is receive the gift of eternal life. And it's a part of man's fallen nature that even if we want to get saved, even if we want to follow Christ, even if we want to be born again, we still feel that there's something we must do. That what he did is just not enough. That we have got to make a contribution. But we don't. All we have to do is receive by faith what he has already done for us. We cannot add anything because once we start to add to his work, we're taken away from his work. We're denying his work. It's a complete work. It's a finished work. And that's the one thing that we have got to try to get into the minds of those who are unbelievers, that you cannot by yourself do anything to save yourself. Can't do it. It's been done for you. All you have to do is receive the gift of life from Christ by faith. Sin was finished. 1 Peter 2.24 Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by, excuse me, by whose stripes you were healed. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. And Hebrews 9. I'm going to read this from the New Living Translation. <coughs> Hebrews 9, 24. 
For Christ has entered into heaven itself to appear now before God as our advocate. He did not go into the earthly place of worship, for that was merely a copy of the real temple in heaven. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, like the earthly high priest who enters the most holy place year after year to offer the blood of an animal. If that had been necessary, he would have had to die again and again ever since the world began. But no, he came once for all time at the end of the age to remove the power of sin forever by his sacrificial death for us. Notice that. He came once for all time at the end of the age to remove the power of sin forever by a sacrificial death for us. He paid the penalty for our sin. He came to remove the power of it over our lives. And thirdly, one day, we'll be even removed from the very presence of it. There'll be no more sin. And so right now we have been saved from the penalty of our sins. One day we'll be saved from the very presence of our sins. But right now, he saves us from the power of sins. Sin shall not have dominion over you, Paul said. Why? Because Christ has given us a power to overcome sin. If he hasn't, and if he didn't, then we'll be no better than we used to be. But we know we're different, and we know we have changed, and we know we have a power, and we know we do not live the way we used to live. Why is that? Because he's given us the power over sin to live the way he wants us to live. In Romans chapter 6, and again reading in the New Living Translation uh, from verse 6. Our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We're no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also share his new life. We're sure of this because Christ rose from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. He died once to defeat sin and now he lives for the glory of God. So you should consider yourselves dead to sin and able to live for the glory of God through Jesus, Jesus Christ. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to its lustful desires. Do not let any part of your body become a tool of wickedness to be used for sinning. Instead, give yourselves completely to God since you have been given new life. And use your whole body as a tool to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master, for you're no longer subject to the law which enslaves you to sin. Instead, you are free by God's grace. So since God's grace has set us free from the law, does this mean we can go on sinning? Of course not. Don't you realize that whatever you choose to obey becomes your master? You can choose sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God and receive his approval. Thank God, once you were slaves of sin, but now you've obeyed with all of your heart the new teaching God has given you. Now you're free from sin, your old master, and you've become slaves to your new master, righteousness. Huh. And so we are free to live for Christ and not be dominated by sin anymore. Not only was salvation finished and sin was finished, but Satan was finished. In John 12, 31, 32, Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now 
the ruler of this world will be cast out. Looking forward to what was going to happen on the cross, it would be the death knell of Satan himself. And if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying but what by what death he should die. Now, right there, that's a very interesting statement. Let me read it to you again. If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to me. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. This is the only time in Israel's long history that men will be lifted up, suspended between heaven and earth, to die as a, a crucifixion. Crucifixion was something that the Phoenicians began. Eventually, the Romans adopted it as their preferred means of execution for foreigners and criminals and slaves, but not themselves. Romans would not crucify a Roman subject, citizen. It was too wicked and it was too cruel, they thought. That was okay for everybody else, but not for them. And so he was suspended between heaven and earth. And Jesus came at the only time in history where that could have happened. All these Old Testament prophecies were all being fulfilled right to the very day he died on that cross. But that being said, Jesus had another reason for saying, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. In John 3, 14, he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So Jesus takes his way back to Numbers chapter 21, to the time of Moses. To the time when the children of Israel were marching to the promised land. And they had great difficulties. And had been wandering 40 years in the wilderness. And they came to Eden. And the Edomites would not let them pass through their land. So they had to make a big, big, big detour. And a very arduous detour over very rocky terrain. And now they grumble again at God. And they grumble at Moses. And they said, you brought us here to die in this wilderness. And this food, this manna that they had been eating, that Psalm 78 called the angel's food, it was so good. They says, we're sick and tired of this. This wretched food, we hate it. And they moaned and they groaned at Moses and God. And God was going to chastise them. And what did he do? He sent fiery serpents among them. Now, when it says fiery serpents, it means poisonous serpents. And when they bit them, then they died. That poison got into their system, and they died. And after so many of them died, then they repented, and they cried unto Moses and said, Ask God, we, we we're sorry we have complained and we have grown. Ask God, we want his forgiveness. Stop this, this dying of these serpents' bites. And what did God say? He said to Moses, here's what to do. He says, make a brazen servant, make a, make a brass servant, put it on a pole and set it up. And everybody that's bitten, if they go and look at that pole, if they look at that serpent, then they'll live. All they have to do is look at it and they'll live. And isn't it wonderful that Jesus, looking back to that, 
likens that unto himself, been hoisted up on a cross, where we can look at him and live. But isn't it interesting that God said to Moses, make a serpent, make an image of the very thing that's killing them, that's poisoning them. But because they have repented, and if they look at that, they'll be saved, they'll be spared, their lives will be well. Jesus, remember when he's on that cross, how, how, could, how could he liken himself to that serpent on a pole? Jesus, when he was on that cross, for those three hours of darkness and silence, remember we told you at that moment, he was becoming sin for us. He was our sin offering. Not sinful, he never was sinful. He never became a sinner, but he became sin for us. All the sins of the world was put upon him, and he became sin for us. God had to turn away his face from him as he was dying on that cross. Sin was the very thing that was poisoning us. Remember the serpent in the garden? Remember that serpent sting in the garden that poisoned Adam and Eve with sin? They were in fact it was sin. And all mankind ever since then, since that serpent in the garden has been in fact it with sin. And here's Jesus, who is our sin offering on that cross. And he's saying, look to me. Look to me and you'll be healed. Look to me and you'll be saved from your sins. Look to me. The thief on the cross looked and he lived, didn't he? And all we've got to do is look to him and we'll live. Now Moses, when he got that serpent on the pole, he didn't put it in a tent. He didn't hide it away. He put it somewhere prominent where everybody could see it. So those who were bitten by the serpents, they could run to that pole and they could look up. And they looked up, then they were healed. When Jesus died on that cross, it wasn't behind a shield. Or it wasn't in a tent. It wasn't in a building. It was right outside Jerusalem on the main highway where people were coming and going into the city where the crowds would be and they could look and they could see him. God has given us his word to reveal Jesus so that we can lift him up, that people can see him, and as they look at him, they'll live. As they look to him, they will live. It takes faith, doesn't it? Those Israelites in the desert, when Moses said, you need to look up at that serpent, it took faith to do that because it seemed foolish. It didn't make any logical sense because the serpent was the thing that bit them. It didn't make any logical sense. It seemed foolish. But when they looked in faith, they were instantly healed. Their lives were spared. What does it say about Christ on the cross? To the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Greeks, foolishness. To religionist, a stumbling block, block. To the philosopher, foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God, isn't it? So whether it's the Jew or the Greek, whether it's the religionist or whether it's the philosopher, they have to, by faith, look to Christ on the cross because that's the only thing's going to save them. He's the only one's going to save them. What he did on the cross, it 
is finished. It's the only thing that's going to save us. It's only going to save every man. But by faith, you have to look and live. But we want to do something. We want to do something. It seems too easy just to look and live. But it's the only way. And that old thief on the cross, he couldn't do anything else. Sure, he couldn't. All he had to do was look and live. And he looked and he lived. Hebrews 2.14, Insomuch then, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Revelation 1.18, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and I have the keys of Hades and of death. He took that away from Satan. Now he holds the power of death and hell in his hands. 1 John 3.8 For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Glory to God. It is finished. Tetelestai. Paid in full. Completed. Accomplished. Nothing can be added to it. It's done. All the doing has been done. All we have to do is look up and live. And his life comes into our lives. And we're never the same again. And so when Jesus hung on that cross and he shouted with a loud voice, Tetelestai! He was making that great declaration. It's done. All that he had come to do to save us, those 33 and a half years on earth, all the rejection, all the blasphemy against him, all the beating and the whipping and the hurting and the spitting and the plucking of his beard and all of that and all the rejection by his own siblings, all of that he suffered for us. He went through all of it so he could say those words, it is finished. It's completed. It's done. It's over. I have completed the work you have given me to do. Isn't it wonderful? And that's the wonderful thing about the gospel. It's a finished work. Religion tries to add to that. But as soon as you add to it, you take away from it. Nothing needs to be added. It's a complete job. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his life on earth. We thank you for all that he did. But we thank you most especially for his death on the cross. We thank you that our salvation is complete. And that we, by faith, have received Christ as our personal Savior. And what grace that is that we should be given such a gift of life. And so we humbly thank you today for all of your sure mercies. We bless you, Lord, that as we live for you, we know that we're not working to try to save ourselves. The work has been done. Now, Lord, we're just living for you to try to reach others and bless others in your name. Thank you, Lord, for the work that you completed for us. And we bless you today that by faith, the very faith that you have put in our hearts, we have received you as our Savior. We give you thanks and bless you in Jesus' name. 
Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.